Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, we learn more about the impact Mexico's drug cartels are having on all facets of life in that country. We find out why the wine industry is struggling to attract younger generations and what that could mean for the future. But first, we hear from the front lines of the truckers' convoy, making its way towards Ottawa across Ontario today. What's the move? What's the mission? And has the protest been hijacked by groups looking to advance their own agendas? Convoys of truckers continue to make their way towards Ottawa tonight. Some passing through the greater Toronto area today, as well as other parts of Ontario, ostensibly to protest a recent vaccine mandate imposed on truckers crossing the Canada-U.S. border, now in place in both countries. But it's a convoy that's also picked up some extreme views along the way, according to a report today from the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Supporters reject accusations the protest has been hijacked and presents a real threat. Here's 57-year-old Dean Brown. The people that are in charge of this are blocking people that are inciting or suggesting violence. It's all about peace. It's all about freedom. It's all about getting the Canadian way of life back. We're not here to turn it into uh, violence. We're not here to turn it into uh, manipulation. We're here to get it back to the way it's supposed to be for Canada as a whole. The Prime Minister, though, was earlier asked about the convoy. He spoke of comments from some associated with it as being completely unacceptable. The small fringe minority of people who are on their way to Ottawa or who are uh, holding unacceptable uh, views uh, that they're expressing do not represent the views of Canadians who have been there for each other. Well, joining me now to sort through all of this is Global National Senior Correspondent Jeff Semple from Toronto. Night, Jeff. How are you? Not too bad, Ben. How are you doing? Thanks. So the convoy, we saw the images, we saw your piece. They rolled through the GTA today, generating more attention, more controversy. What was the mood like? Yeah, it was it was an interesting mood. It was a bit of a mixed bag, I have to say. We, you know, I spent part of the day on the highway and uh, up in Vaughan Mills, just on the northern edge of Toronto, where a lot of truckers were gathering to join the procession on their way to Ottawa. So before joining the procession, they gathered up in up the northern edge of Toronto. Um, and, you know, there was, was a big crowd. I mean, there were, I didn't get a head count, but, you know, easily hundreds of people, possibly more than a thousand people gathered here in the shopping mall parking lot. A lot of truckers uh, and their supporters who, you know, most of whom I spoke to were, were quite polite and trying to sound positive, but, you know, also upset, of course, about what they see as um, is, is an unfair vaccine requirement for their profession and talking about, you know, them being essential workers, all the work they've done during the course of the pandemic. Um, but, the, you know, in addition to the truckers, there were also a lot of people, I think, you know, a majority of the people there were not truckers and not related to the trucking industry, as far as we could tell, but were just either there to support them or there to support other related causes, in some cases, even sort of unrelated causes. A lot of people very angry at just Justin Trudeau, generally anti-lockdown, anti-vaccine, a lot of anger towards the media, uh, journalists like myself and my colleagues there were just constantly faced with a barrage of verbal assaults basically all day. Um, in fact, one of the local Toronto news crews actually called police at one point um, after they said that one of the protesters tried to drive their vehicle into one of the reporters while he was doing his work there. So there was a lot of tension. Um, you know, it's certainly some very tense scenes at some point during the day. Um, and the concern, of course, is that that tension might bubble over 
once that convoy reaches Parliament Hill. So a real mixed bag of, of sort of peaceful truckers and protesters and a lot of other angry folks as well who were, you know, professing anti-immigrant, uh, anti-government, uh, anti-Trudeau sort of sentiments, Ben. And Jeff, you looked into this a bit in your piece tonight. You asked, you spoke to different experts about whether or not this, you know, what is happening to this to this convoy? Because it certainly doesn't seem like it's a, solely about vaccine mandates anymore, far from it. And what did you find out? Yeah, I mean, the consensus that we spoke, uh, from the experts that we spoke to on this, and these are people who sort of, um, including Barbara Perry and um, uh, from the um, the Center on Hate, Bias and Extremism, and others who monitor this space, right-wing groups and conspiracy theories. And the consensus seems to be that this this has suddenly become kind of a catch-all for countless other issues and campaigns. So, uh, and there are concerns because some of these groups have, have you know, been sharing quite threatening language. Um, one of the, there was one man uh, that we looked at in particular, uh, Justin, Le, uh, Jason LaFace, excuse me, from Sudbury, who um, was one of the organizers of the Ontario component of this protest. And his social media accounts are rife with, um, you know, anti-vaccination, anti-immigrant. He posted on one of his social media channels recently listing all of the politicians who were not born in Canada. Um, he called on people to loot a grocery store that was asking for proof of vaccination. Um, and yet he is, you know, one of the people who is self-described as organizing this protest. We've heard other members, people who say they plan to attend, who are calling for this to become Canada's January 6th, which is, of course, a reference to the crowds that stormed the U.S. Capitol last year. Um, you know, a lot of people online talking and calling on the trucks to plow through the gates in front of Parliament Hill. Um, so some pretty scary language. Um, you know, we've heard from some, including the conservative finance critic, Pierre Polyev, uh, in Ottawa today, who basically accused the media of, of focusing on a handful of bad apples um, and saying that, you know, the thousands of people, these truckers who have basically been keeping us all alive by filling our grocery store shelves for the past couple of years, that's who is taking part in this process, this, these, this movement, you know, and, and that we shouldn't be focusing on a small handful of bad actors. Ottawa police, though, Ben, they're seemingly concerned enough that they have talked about they are changing their game plan. Uh, for the next 48 hours or so and, and and preparing for the potential for violence. I mean, I mean, I look at the, the way the politicians have described this, whether it be Pierre Polyev or the prime minister, and you'd be, you'd be you'd get the impression they were talking about two different convoys. And they very well may both well be right. I mean, this is a legitimate protest by people upset about a legitimate vaccine mandate and others jumping on board to take advantage for their own gains. But as you mentioned, yeah. Ottawa police authorities in general are taking this seriously. What, what happens now? I know that they're that the convoy is headed towards Kingston, and I believe towards Ottawa as early as uh, tomorrow. That's right. So they've arrived in in Kingston for the most part. That's what we've heard from our colleagues there. That they are, you know, checking in to to go to sleep for the night in the Kingston sort of Napanee area, uh, and that they will hit the road at eight thirty Eastern time tomorrow morning and head to Ottawa. So you know, only a couple of hours, two and a half hours away. And then they'll start arriving in the nation's capital, so sort of around lunchtime on Friday. And the big event, the big protest is scheduled for Saturday. Um, and, you know, we saw it in Toronto today, you know, besides the big crowd that had gathered, people lining overpasses over the 401 and the 404. And so we expect to see that in Ottawa as well. Um, Ottawa police have been pretty tight-lipped in terms of the specifics of their security preparations. But we do know that um, the area businesses around Parliament Hill have been asked to close. 
um, for the day on Saturday. Uh, expect to see you know significant barricades and other security in and around Parliament Hill. And we also heard late today, Ben, um, a warning from the Sergeant at Arms, who is the top official in charge of overseeing security for the House of Commons, who issued a warning to MPs about the potential risks of the coming convoy of truckers. And that includes a specific re reference to the potential of uh, some of these folks released, finding and releasing private personal details, including home addresses of some MPs and encouraging members to uh, basically protest in front of their homes. So that's uh, concern enough that the Sergeant of Arms is issuing security advice to MPs in Ottawa. And um, so as, as you alluded to there, it's... Um, in the question it's it is sort of you know there are multiple faces to this to this movement and we we saw many of them today we saw many polite friendly positive protesters who are concerned about the direction the country is heading in and we saw a lot of anger and a lot of threatening language and so it's difficult to to say for certain how this is going to play out therein lies the enigma jeff semple thank you so much for your insight on this and for sharing what you saw today much appreciated thanks ben anytime <laughs> Well, we learned more this week from authorities in Mexico about the shooting deaths of two Canadians at a luxury resort in the resort area of Playa del Carmen near Cancun last week. According to uh, the Mexican prosecutor, a senior Mexican prosecutor, it was motivated by debts between international gangs, apparently dedicated to drug and weapons trafficking. The investigations indicate that the attack was motivated again by debts and had been planned for a while, that uh, there had been another plan for an attack earlier uh, that had been called off because of security and then was carried out last week. So still lots to figure out there. It is, of course, not the first time we've read about uh, about violence in that particular area, a very popular tourism area, the Mayan Riviera. In November, there was a shootout on the beach of Puerto Morelos that left two suspected drug dealers dead. And in late October, Tulum, which is a particularly quiet place most of the time, uh, two tourists, one a California travel blogger born in India, another German, were killed in an apparent crossfire during a shootout between rival drug dealers there. It's often the only time we talk about uh, unfortunately, uh, given what's going on, we talk about um, the violence that sometimes crosses between those two worlds in Mexico, the tourism world and the drug world. They're often connected. The demand within the tourism world often drives the drugs into those areas to begin with. But we really wanted to take a deeper look into the impact cartels are having, not just in, in areas such as Cancun and Playa del Carmen on the Mayan Riviera, but throughout the country. And to help us do that is Emmanuel Gallardo. He's a Mexican-born journalist currently working on a book about the inner workings of drug cartels and the explosion of violence in Mexico because of them. Welcome to the show, Emmanuel. Thank you very much for having me tonight. I'm really fascinated by about your work and, and mostly how you started. Uh, I mean, how did you get interested in in the activities of cartels and where did you begin? What were your first stories like? Uh, my first stories, well, actually, I began back in 1994, 1993, with uh, a very close approach to uh, the prostitution rinks in Mexico City before I was a professional journalist. It was, that was my first approach. My father is a journalist as well, so I'm, uh, I come from a, a family of journalists. But in specific about uh, organized crime, it's very important for uh, journalists in Mexico now to consider that it's uh, a problem that goes beyond drug trafficking. There's a lot of uh, mythology involved because of the shows, because of the 
all the culture that uh, surrounds the, the problem of uh, organized crime. So it's since many years ago, but I am focusing now in organized crime in Michoacán, uh, for instance, in Mexico City as well. And, well, that's, that's pretty much why I got involved in this. I was going to say there was, there's been, I mean, there's so much to look into there. When you talk about it being so much more than just drug cartels, what do you mean? How far does it permeate into society in a way that maybe our listeners wouldn't, wouldn't know or wouldn't know to know? For instance, most of the time we think that uh, uh, there's a war, you know, and, and the word uh, war, it's, it's pretty big, though. But uh, if we consider that beyond drug trafficking, there's more things that uh, we are not considering, such as uh, uh, natural resources, for instance, uh, natural resources in Michoacán, uh, like avocado, uh, or natural resources in La Cuenca de Burgos, in Tamaulipas. And most of the time, it's pretty common to say that it's drugs or they are fighting because of the uh, roots of drug trafficking. But it's more, it's, uh, it's very political. The, there's a link between the organized uh, uh, criminals and the politicians, uh, they, I mean, the organized crime in Mexico cannot exist without the corruption of the politicians. So, uh, like, for instance, what is happening right now in Cancun, in the Mayan Riviera, it's just a reflection of that corruption. The, Mexico has a high, very high level of impunity because of that corruption. We're talking about that it's almost 98% of impunity, which means that you can do whatever you want and get rid of the problem without, you know, facing any kind of consequence. So it's, it's that. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Emmanuel Gallardo, a Mexican-born journalist currently working on a book about the inner workings of the cartels and the violence that has ensued. I, I wanted to talk about the Mayan Riviera, and of course, you know, that's what always makes headlines here because people are so familiar with some of the areas that, that were this, some of this, very little of this violence, but some of this violence takes place. But I want to touch on something that you just mentioned, which is, which is sort of the wide array of things that, that are now fall under the guise of, of organized crime. And you mentioned avocados. Um, and I just want to ask you about that because I don't know whether people are aware of what the links are. Yes. Um, in Michoacán, in the Tierra Caliente, in the hotland, there's where the Tancitaro, uh, it's, it's a town in Michoacán where it's the, it's the biggest uh, avocado producer in the world. And avocado, it's the, it's the green gold nowadays in Mexico. And Groups of the uh, criminal organizations since maybe 20 years ago were extortioning the producers, were uh, collecting quota or to, you know, to let the, the workers work safe. And, well, now we can see that, uh, I don't know if you remember back in 2013, it was an uprise in that area in specific, because they were tired of uh, those extortions, of uh, the assassinations, the kidnappings, all the violations of basic human rights that uh, 
are not headlines in the regular media, you know, because uh, it's very complex to talk about what is going on right now in Mexico nowadays. Uh, it's pretty complex. Each state, each municipality has its own problems. And we need anthropologists, psychologists, social psychologists that can uh, intervene, that can see further of what is going on here nowadays in Mexico. It's pretty, uh, it's a complexity and the corruption is really a big problem. I was just reading that in Michoacan, there's been some thousands, tens of thousands of people have been moved off, displaced from their homes, their land, because of all the fighting that's going on. So this is something that impacts people right in their backyards. They might as well be, I mean, not to you, it's not a war, but they might as well be in a war zone. Exactly. As you said, uh, a couple of months ago, there were up to 3,000 displayed displaced people from Michoacan stuck in Tijuana. They were, they were trying to, to ask for refugee or asylum or, uh, in, in the U.S. In the zone of uh, Aguililla, in Michoacan, Cualcomán, El Aguaje, those areas in the hotland that are very close to the state of Colima, uh, it's, it's the wild, wild west. I am talking about that politicians are uh, colluded with the organized crime, and they're not looking for the people's interest. Here in Canada, we're used to see how the uh, democracy works, and it's pretty awesome, right? But in certain regions in Mexico, being a politician means that you're going to make money, that you are going to be, you know, just pretending that you are doing something for the community. But the reality is that in certain places, the organized crime rules. In what way? I'm going to, I mean, one of my sources uh, in the book that I'm writing, uh, he was a jefe de plaza, right? He's chief of plaza, which is just a term that uh, it's now pretty common. In like, a mayor or, like a mayor or like a mayor? No, yeah. It's like the, 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 the um, representative of the criminal group in that region. Right. Right. But and he has more power than a political that has been elected legally by the people, you know, so yeah. uh-huh. go ahead. No, that was just, I was going to let you, let you finish. I mean, we're going to take a quick break. I really want to ask you, because I think people are really curious about how those worlds intersect in the Mayan Riviera, because we're so used to seeing those names. And I also wanted to ask, of course, because we read about this all the time, is just the sheer risk that journalists such as yourself take to tell these stories about the cartels in Mexico these days. Um, Emmanuel Gallardo, Hold on for just a moment. We'll be right back after this with more insight on Mexico's cartels. I'm back with Emmanuel Gallardo, a Mexican-born journalist currently working on a book about the inner workings of the Mexican cartels and the explosion of violence that it's brought with it. Uh, thanks for staying with us. I really wanted to touch on a bit a bit just what we've read about the Mayan Riviera in the past bit. Because mm-hmm. I know there's been a tourist army sent in, quote unquote, as we as we've called it. Um as well as, you know, sort of an upswing in violence. And I was wondering from your perspective, what is it that we're seeing? Because it feels like we're seeing the two worlds collide, the tourism world and the drug world. At the same time, we know that there's a lot of demand in the tourism world from the drug world that brings them in. 
Yes. Uh, well, we have to consider the political environment right now at that state, Quintana Roo. They are going to have uh, elections in June, July. Okay. So when that happens, all the uh, organized uh, crime members start seeing with what politician they are going to go with. Right. And that's actually what uh, the population is waiting for. That's the reason that we can see a lot of violence uh, right now in the region. But uh, as you said, there, there are two separate worlds. One world is the tourism. The other world, it's the it's the crime. So as uh, if you are a Canadian tourist and if you want to go to enjoy Mexico, its beaches, restaurants, and the beauty of the Mayan Riviera, you can go. There's no problem. Nobody's going to be waiting for you with a gun or something like that. So it's totally safe. But if you go to Mexico and you want to find drugs, hard drugs, cocaine, or something like that, because, I mean, it's it's not a secret. That place is a paradise for for drugs, Okay. So if you're looking for that kind of entertainment, prostitution, or something like that, you are entering in that world that you are saying. It's a parallel world. You are going to be safe if you stay at your resort, if you go to, you know, as a regular tourist. But if you want to try to do something, you have to, I mean, else, you know, like goes uh, above the law, you have to consider that uh, that world is ruled by the mafia by the criminal organizations, and you're on your own. So if you're at two in the morning trying to be adventurous, and if you want to go to a bar because you met the taxi cab driver that is telling you that in that place you can find whatever you want, well, you're risking yourself a lot. So it's, yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. it's, sorry, go ahead. And behind that, okay, that's for the tourism, right? That's, uh, for, for the people, international tourism that go to Mexico. But what about the Mexicans that are living there? You know, we're talking about that there's more than 7,000 businesses in all the region. But the extortion problem, there's a crisis there, a crisis of extortions. Because even the guy that is dressing as Batman or as Spider-Man on the street outside of the one of the big bars in Cancun, that guy is being extorted by the organized crime. Even the taco guy who has his little stand there, he's going to be paying some money all the way to the top, to the resorts. I mean, and sadly, this is something that gets, you know, pretty common. People, because they are afraid, they don't go to the authorities because they are also afraid of the authorities because they don't know. Just, just imagine that you are being extorted and you want to go to the police and you are afraid to go to the police because you don't know if they have connections with the criminals and after three days, something is going to happen to you. So they are trapped. People are trapped. Businesses are trapped. What do you make of this, um, of President Obrador's tourist security battalion that he sent in last year after one of those incidents in Tulum, which of course involves some innocent bystanders caught in a, in a, in a shootout. Is it, is it just, just show, is it just to show it, it doesn't change anything? 
to have a tourist security battalion in. I think it's about 1,500 National Guard, right, that have been sent into that area? Yeah, those are military personnel. Mm-hmm. What, we, don't, we don't need that. We don't need more, more army guys there. We don't need solu- we need solutions, but coming from from the very bottom, not only just a display of power, of you know muscle with a lot of guns and armed guys and all that stuff. I mean, I understand that it's necessary, but guess why? Because the police cannot do that. It's supposed that the police gets prepared for that. Soldier is prepared to kill. They are used to kill people, you know, because they are soldiers. They are trained to do that. But a police, why the police officers are not capable to do that? Because they are corrupted. So why do we need all that display of, of, of uh, power? Because we need to show to the world that they are safe. And if we need to have the, 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 the Marines there uh, or, or the military there, well, the government is going to try to do it. So, I mean, uh, it's in order to try to solve these in a very, like, lasting way we don't need more military we need to see what's going on from the very bottom we need to remove the corruption from the judicial system we need to have the freedom to go to the authorities and Mm -hmm. to know that they are going to help us because we don't have any justice you were telling me about being a reporter in mexico well as many of you know Mexico, it's the most dangerous place in the world to be a journalist. Just to have to give you an idea. In uh, we're just coming up on time here, Manuel. I'm sorry. I'm just a, a last word to you. Oh, yes. Oh, sorry. Just yeah. to give you an idea about uh, uh, what is going on with the with the journalist in Mexico. Yeah. In January, three journalists have been murdered in Mexico. Just in January. 28 journalists have been assassinated in all this uh, new administration with uh, Mr. Andres Manuel López Obrador. 28 wow. journalists. 148 journalists in 22 years. So they yeah. are killing us. Emmanuel, I gotta, we could talk about this all night. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much for your insight. Have a great night. You have a great night as well. Oh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. A lot of interesting stuff in the report this year. I mean, uh, we can't not talk about the pandemic and how it's changed all industries, but also uh, the wine industry in unique and and um, common ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the pandemic is, I mean, who would have thought that you would have a pandemic and have the stock market go up and home prices <laughs> rise the way they have? So there's been remarkable change uh, in, in many, many ways. Um, Channel shifting is a big part of it. And for the wine industry, we ended up in the United States, we ended up closing all the tasting rooms and the restaurants um, you know, across the nation for a period of time that in the 2020 uh, era. And uh, so that shifted all of the, the purchases back to grocery um, and made it very difficult to actually figure out what was happening in the, in the industry. But uh, yeah, we, we all have many, many stories from 2020 and in 2021, it reversed itself. So everything that happened before kind of unwound, but there's permanent changes uh, that have taken place too. Yeah, I mean, what are some of those permanent changes that you're beginning to see? Some of them are just advances. So for instance, you know, you could see, you could see that the internet uh, sales of wine in the United States was going to take off, but it had been going very slowly 
if you looked at the average winery in uh, in 2019, their sales for internet were somewhere between a percent and two percent total. They weren't they weren't that much, but but you know when you have consumers locked in their houses, um, they start looking for for ways to get what they want, and so. In 2020, it increased to about 10% of sales, for instance. Uh, and I kind of thought for 2021, we would see it drop back, a reversion to the mean, as they like to say. And uh, so I kind of expected as we saw restaurants reopen, that people would go back to restaurants, that people would go back to tasting rooms, back to wine clubs that we have in the United States. And uh, it didn't happen. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, it, internet sales grew. Uh, as a percent of sales, they they remain flat, but total sales actually grew. So, so what's happened? I, I, in other words, I mean, I know how important tasting rooms here are, are here in British Columbia and wine country. Um, I know how important restaurant sales have been traditionally for, for wine. Are, are we see, now seeing a shift to some extent away from those things? Um, yes, yes and no. I mean, uh, in the United States, we have what we call three-tier distribution. Um, so it's, you know, I think in, in Canada, if I'm recalling correctly, there's a, a nationalized sort of distribution system, but in the United States is privatized, but it's locked up. And, um, and so only the very large producers truly get access to all the chain stores. The small producers just are, are kind of a pain, honestly, to the distributors. They can't afford um, so um, it's important. It's actually critical for the small producer to figure out how to sell direct to consumer. And you're starting to see that trend across many, many retail segments. Direct to consumer is becoming, you know, the way to go. And, and at some point with, uh, you know, with the, the kind of software that's out there and the, the computational power, you know, at some point we're going to be able to um, start to figure out how to market to an individual instead of a group. And, and I think in the end, that's where it's going. Uh, it'll, it'll be for a, a while out, but, um, but that's where it's headed. And so direct consumer component is, is a, a critically important thing. Roughly for the average winery, about 60% of sales in the United States. Wow. That's, that's um, a big number. One of the things I found most interesting about the report this year was your look at demographics, who's buying wine, who, who a wine customer is these days. And, and you raise a bit of a red flag about, um, about the future of wine sales, specifically for, for younger generations. Where are you seeing a drop in consumption? What do you think it's down to? So you have to kind of go back and you have to look at where wine became important in the United States. And, and uh, really, it was the middle 90s, uh, the, the French paradox, uh, Mediterranean diet. Um, there was work by Arthur Kanzler, doctor at Kaiser, who came up with a, uh, you know, plenty of work that supported the notion that moderate alcohol consumption had um, positive benefits for, for heart uh, condition. And, uh, you know, at the time, the boomers were just coming into their own with money. And that was really the only good premium uh, alcoholic beverage that was available. Beer really wasn't very good in the United States. Uh, and probably, you know, worldwide, it wasn't that great unless you maybe, maybe in Germany, perhaps, but uh, places in Europe, but not in the United States. Um, and spirits were equally uh, not made that well. But in the, in the late 90s, spirits started to take off. They copied what was happening with premiumization in wine, premium quality wine. Um, and so the boomers have really 
driven wine sales in the United States for the past 25 plus years. But now that, you know, that median boomer hits normal retirement age of 66 in the U.S., um, you know, you see people, I would, I would, I like to say sunsetting is, is, is the better way to say it um, uh, as consumers. And so now you have these younger consumers that are raised in a different era with different values, and they, they don't really hold wine in the esteem that the, uh, the older consumers do. And, you know, what, what group of younger people want to drive their parents' car, right? That's, yeah, market to their values, um, you know, not the old generation. And that's, that's the place where we find ourselves right now. And everybody that's coming up behind the plus 65-year-old uh, age band um, thinks about wine, uh, well, they, let's just say it plainly, as they drink across categories. They just don't really have any allegiance to a category. And for the wine industry, that's, that's a significant drop between cohorts. One of the things you pointed out is that the wine industry itself has been slow to recognize the trend, slow to at least try to appeal to another generation in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, the way I view things, but uh, you know, for its internet sales, obviously they've been around since the nineties um, and the wine industry is, you know, a late adopter. Uh, and that's just one example of, of of many things, but it's a traditional industry, and uh, and it learned to market effectively to what I call lifestyles of the rich and famous. The older generation used to like to you know wear their wealth publicly. Um, conspicuous consumption was in, uh, but it's not anymore. Uh, so you know the ability to to actually look at who your consumer is. And I think this is hard for any business, but you know, if you, if you have a consumer as an example, that dominates purchasing and they're doing really well and you're growing as a business and everything seems fine. It's really hard to make a change and say, well, this is maybe not where it's going to be because you have to change where you're aiming for something that's coming. And, and that's hard. And so for our industry in particular, that's traditional and very fragmented, a lot of small producers, um, it's been really hard to change. And, and there's still, uh, you know, really a lack of, um, of uh, effort, if you will, to, to make these changes. I'm speaking with Rog McMillan. He's the author of the Silicon Valley Bank's annual State of the Wine Industry Report. One of the things you pointed out I found interesting, I noticed this just at the liquor store, even here in Canada, is, is how few what we might call entry-level brand entry-level wines are out there that seem really appealing. Uh, I know there's been a lot of sort of marketing around trying to make wine slightly more accessible to a younger generation. I don't think the wine itself is very good, um, or not all of it. Uh, where do you think that, where do you think that's come up short? Well, I don't think that young consumers are going to buy a $35 U.S. bottle of wine to try. Um, in the old days, we used to have wine writers that would, or raters that would, um, you know, help direct somebody's attention to wine. But there's so many wines, there's so many choices now. Um, it's really difficult to get the attention of that of that consumer. Uh, but you know, trial is the most important thing to, to anything, but particularly for wine. You know, that it's not the first sale that's important. It's actually the second. The second sale means that you've got somebody's attention. The first sale, though, is a really hard one to, to get. And we used to be able to get through restaurants, uh, you know, taste rooms, another one. But everything under 
$10, let's say, um, were the places where I call on-ramps for that new consumer. Uh, the problem is the you know prices have gone up, the costs have gone up, particularly for real estate in the United States, and that gets baked into the price of a bottle. And so, you know, I find the, the wine's under $10 now relatively unimaginative. And so that consumer drinking across categories into spirits and cocktails can get a really interesting craft cocktail or a ready-to-drink cocktail in a can with with premium uh, ingredients. And that's what the wine industry is competing against. Uh, the, the purchase, the entry level is is less. The quality of those spirits is is are good. <laughs> and uh, and you know the the wine just is not holding up uh, from a value standpoint for that for that consumer. And so something has got to change. If you look ahead to uh, 2022, 2023, where do you see uh, the industry headed uh, and what are some of the sort of the highlights and the lowlights that you, you see coming up? Uh, everything in premium is doing really well. Uh, the growth rate in premium wine last year, uh, those are, you know, the, the, they're small, small wineries, but the growth rate was uh, 21%. Now, that's coming off of all these lockdowns. So they were hurt the most in, tw- in 2020. So, you know, that kind of 21% growth is, is not sustainable. But that part of the industry is growing quite well. And, uh, and that'll probably, there's no reason to believe that won't continue um, because, you know, we'll always have wealthy. But the question is, is that who you want to sell your product to? Do you really want it just to be for a wealthy class? And, you know, I, I'd say that's a dumb way to go. <laughs> you know, if you, if you really want to be successful, you've got to grow your category. So um, that's the, the blinders that we have on in our industry right now. And, and I'm hopeful for some change. Um, going forward, of course, as, as, a, as a world, we've got to get through a pandemic um, and all the supply chain problems that we have. When you think about wine and, and its distribution, wine is very heavy. It comes in bottles. You know, you, you can't make freeze-dried wine. <laughs> That'll never happen. Um, but you can find better ways to package it uh, that are more uh, carbon neutral, and uh, and that you know does appeal to a, a consumer today. So th- those are the kind of changes I think that we're going to have to see uh, to remain successful and uh, and viable as an industry. Well, we'll we'll always be viable. I mean, <laughs> wine has been around for. Well, I was in the Republic of Georgia, and they say that's where the first wine uh, you know, in- industry actually formed. And that was like, I think it was 15,000 years ago. So there's a good chance it'll be around still. But um, I'd like to see it around more healthy than it, than it might be, uh, at least what's headed down the path. Rob McMillan, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. You're welcome. 